Hello, welcome to Meshi. My name is Kenno, and something that sparks joy for me is my very overpriced Kindle Oasis. Hi, my name is Stephanie, and something that sparks joy is my miniature stuffed version of Paddington. Oh, <laughs> do you have it with you? Um, he's like in the room, but just far away. He's like on my vanity. He watches me do my makeup. Where'd you get it? It was a gift from my mom. I don't know where she got it, but she was like, here, my adult child, have this teddy bear. <laughs> That's nice. She knows you That's like cute. Paddington. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mizuko. Hi, I'm Mizuki. Something that sparks joy for me is my sewing machine that I got last year from my mom for my birthday. I've made a dress with it. And today we have our first guest on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Mayan, and do I have to say something that's about a story? <laughs> um, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm literally sat in front of it, but um, my housemate last year left me a note because I made her brownie, and it just like says in all caps, these brownies are a sensation, you are a sensation, so I just put it on my fridge so I see it every morning. Just wake up to her screaming at me. <laughs> Wait, can you guys talk about how you know each other? Yeah, Mayan is... My friend from university, she was initially my year above mentor for our art history department, and we became friends for some reason. <laughs> and she's like one of the smartest people I know. She doesn't have any specific Mary condoing experience related to our podcast, but I wanted to have her on because she's really brilliant. So today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, and which I'm really excited about, which is... Mary Kondo. So I told everyone to read The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up in its entirety and also if possible attempt to do a little bit of spring cleaning or like spark joying. But maybe we can all talk a little bit about what we thought of the book. She makes a lot of points about what is commonly accepted to be the correct way of tidying up. And then she basically explained her method, which is pretty much the opposite of things that she's been taught are supposed to be the way of tidying things, like go one room at a time, do a little bit every day. And she's like, no, you have to do everything at once, so at least in the closest space of time that you can. And go one category at a time, which personally is something that I think is very helpful, instead of like one room at a time. And what comes next? Discard first and then store later so that you've reduced everything that you have. And then the central thing is, does it spark joy? Like you have to handle every object itself and just ask yourself. It was interesting to hear about her growing up and figuring out how to tidy using her house and her family as guinea pigs. And also acknowledging that sometimes she didn't take their feelings into consideration when she was trying to tidy. I also thought it was interesting how she's talking about how to clean and tidy, but it's not just about that. It's also about figuring out why you have all this stuff. And so you kind of have to psychoanalyze yourself. So I have owned the book for many years now after Keno told me I should buy it and read it. And I had only ever gotten through like the first 50% 
Um, but this time I read it all the way through and I feel like I could have just gotten away with reading 50% because I feel like the main tips are in the first half where she's talking about the method itself and then the second half is more anecdotal and about the effect cleaning or tidying has had on like her clients lives and there were some parts that I was just like question mark question mark um (laughs) I get the concept of like your space can be a reflection of your mental state or how you're feeling and so by having your physical space be tidy and full of things you like then in theory that can help your mind and your ability to like conceptualize who you are where you're going all of that but there were just parts where she was like here let me just read a quote she says from observing my clients i've noticed that when they part with excess clothing their tummies tend to slim down when they discard books and documents their minds tend to become clearer when they reduce the number of cosmetics and tidy up the area around the sink and bath their complexion tends to become clear and their skin smooth although i have no scientific basis for this theory it is very interesting to see that part of the body responding corresponds closely to the area that is put in order. Isn't it wonderful that tidying your house can also enhance your beauty and contribute to a healthier, trimmer body? So, (laughs) yeah, that just, that rubbed me the wrong way. It's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory. But, I mean, overall, like, I don't disagree with the concept of the book or, like, the central message. At times, I was just like, it's it's not that deep, bro. <laughs> like, tidying <laughs> can be really helpful. And like, for some people, it's probably transformational, but it doesn't have to be this life altering thing. It can just be something that you do because you want to. And it's like a helpful method um, without it being the catalyst for you achieving self-actualization. I have comorid in full and I haven't lost any weight as a result of that. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized there are some things that like actively don't spark joy that I hold on to, but for very good reason. Okay, so you didn't do the thing. No, I did my I did my clothes and I did my makeup, which are the two categories that I have the most items for. But I didn't get to the papers or the sentimental objects. But I know that for papers, like I keep all my old journals and they don't spark joy in me, but I think they're useful to have to remind myself like how I was feeling at different points in my life and to like track the progress I've made over the years. And so I hate reading them and a lot of them don't say very good things, but I think they're important to have. So sorry, Mary. She talks about in the book, she's like, there are some things that are practical to own. Just because something doesn't spark joy doesn't necessarily mean you have to chuck it. Like we have to own a certain amount of things and I feel like your journals would file under the category of essential but not that pleasant but it feels like a thing that could meet that criteria where like you do evaluate it from that perspective similar to how you would evaluate an old birthday card but you just explained that you get a lot of utility out of them like the joy I guess is you learning from your past Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) sure Do they take up a lot of space, though? No, they're just a couple notebooks. So they don't take up a lot of space. They're all shoved into a backpack in the back of my closet. So you need to store them vertically. No. Okay. (laughs) No, thank you. This isn't going to end until I actually come to your house and clean up for you. (laughs) I'm very impressed by Kino's resilience to make us all get to the KonMari method because like I, this is the long game like you've been playing it since the first time you read the book <laughs> oh yeah no for sure I have encouraged everyone in my life to KonMari if not actively bullied 
and it's been very unsuccessful. So I've moved to just deciding that if people aren't going to do it themselves, I'm just going to do it for them. Doesn't she talk about this? Oh, yeah, she did. <laughs> about like how you're not supposed to force people or like do it for yeah, them. Yeah, you're not supposed to force people to clean. Yeah. Did you read the book? <laughs> Listen. <laughs> It's your villain origin story. (laughs) Yeah, it really would be. I'm like willing to incite violence for the sake of Tidy. (laughs) Mary Kondo jokerified me. (laughs) Overall, how did you guys feel about the Netflix show? I found it easier to understand than the book just because it's a visual medium. (laughs) So if you don't have time to read the book, you can just watch the show and you'll get the rules. Knowing that it's a Netflix show, I also couldn't help wondering, is this for real? Like, did these people really clean up their house? Or did someone just come in and do it for them after Marie left? It had a very queer eye vibe to me where it's hard to tell how deeply people internalize the method since it's filmed over such a short period of time. And you don't ever see what happens to the subjects afterwards, whether they stick to it or not. So even though the subject matter is quite unique, it felt like a generic self-help types of shows. It's always felt very superficial in the sense that when the cameras are off, did this actually make an impact? But in terms of viewing experience, it was fine. And I like that she does take the time to like explain the concepts in between clips of the individual so you're still getting a sense of the konmari method without just watching these other people do it i really like enjoyed the viewing experience and it was very generic as a netflix show but i think there was something as a tidying up and as a makeover kind of show that made it quite special and i think they've kind of avoided some of the ethical dilemma of reality tv because of the method because there's no point of her just coming to your house and doing it for you like the whole thing is that you have to do it yourself and part of the process of the transformation is that you have to take agency and like feel that you're in control with what you're doing but also I think that something that made it a very sort of like special and nice viewing experience especially as a tidying show is that she has a lot of empathy for her subject of the show obviously like a lot of this is for tv but it does also feel that genuinely she's interested in the specific life of these people and why they can and can't part with certain object and she makes a lot of space to adapt and i tried to like watch other tidying up show after but like All of the rest on Netflix was just like people tidying for someone else and putting things in pretty boxes. It didn't have the satisfaction of actually feeling like you're making person-specific progress. Also, I will say she seems like a very happy person. She's very smiley. Yeah, she's really cute. There was like internet discourse for like five minutes about how people complained about people calling her cutesy. They were like, oh, that's racist or sexist or something. But I'm like, but she is like that. Like, she's weird even by Asian and woman standards. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like she's very stereotypically Japanese to me. Like, down to her attire. Mm. She's very conservative. Yeah. She wears exactly what a mannequin at a store wears in, like, a Japanese Mm. shop. The style is so specific and so different. Like, I would never wear that, but it suits some people. Or, like, that's 
their style, but it's a very Japanese style to me.、Mm. Is it racist to say that? Is it racist to say that she dresses like a Japanese person? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but tell us like your experience doing the Komari method. How much did you throw away, and like what did you discover about yourself in the process? Me? Yeah, you're the only one who's done it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is a few years ago, but I threw out quite a few garbage bags worth of things, and I, I wouldn't say I became like a better person or magically improved my life as a result of it. But I think what really worked for me was that, like she says, once I tidied, I didn't have to do it again ever, which I loved. And I think I really adapted those habits of coming home and unpacking all of my stuff and putting everything where it needs to be because I know where all my stuff is organized. So I feel like komariing really refined my sense of taste and what I do and don't like. It's not that I don't impulse buy anymore, which I definitely still do, but like I can look at something and pretty instantaneously decide whether it'll be something I keep for a long time. Whereas before, I would just kind of buy things. And not really consider whether it looked like something I'd already owned or actually had any utility in my life. But I think at the present, everything I own is something I can justify, especially in the long term. Well, that's nice.、Um, in terms of consumerism, I don't really feel the urge to Marie Kondo my room because I don't really buy a lot of things, and th- that's also probably a privilege of mine. But I don't really buy things. Unless I really, really need them. Do you not feel the urge to? I do, but I stop myself. Oh, so you're just better than me. <laughs> no, I think it's because I grew up Christian, and it's like <laughs> resist your temptations was a big thing. <laughs> so I learned how to do that. I mean, I very conveniently just moved house, so I've kind of just been forced to tidy things、um, and put them in boxes. I don't think I've done the Conmary method per se, but I did do like a big tidying when I left London. I feel okay with the amount of stuff I have, and they all like bring me joy. So unexpectedly, did the permanent tidying, if that makes sense. I did Conmary my makeup as I already mentioned. I think with makeup it was a lot easier only because a lot of products officially have a shelf life that most people ignore. But yeah, it was a lot easier to get rid of items that didn't spark joy because I was also able to say, "Oh well, it's expired," and so I feel less bad about throwing it out. What did you chuck stuff? Um, some eyeliners, a couple of eyeshadows that I hadn't worn in a long time, like a concealer. I have like a decent amount of makeup, but I know that there are definitely a lot of people who have way more than I do. I guess that leads us to an interesting question where I feel like you could own a lot of stuff while still following the teachings of Kunmari or Marie Kondo. Where, like, what if everything you have really truly does spark that much joy in you? Do you feel like it's synonymous with minimalism? And do you think Marie Kondo's purpose is to promote minimalism? And does she actually do that? Well, first, what is minimalism? Oh God, that's a really loaded question. Yeah, I think therein lies the problem. <laughs> yeah,、mm. <laughs> the term minimalism comes from the art world, not from like a lifestyle perspective. At the core, it's to see everything that's around you in terms of. It's utility, like how、mm. not have anything around you that you don't directly need, 
and you can take that as extremely or as lightly as you want. I guess in the Marie Kondo sense of minimalism, it's about getting rid of things more than not consuming things, right? She always talked about how many bags of things people threw out. I feel like more than she talked about how much stuff people bought as their lives went on. But I feel like it's even contentious to say whether Marie Kondo is actually a minimalist or not because she advocates for valuing what you not. own. And yeah, okay. I mean, I guess she's a minimalist in the sense that her philosophy is reducing the items in your life that don't bring you joy or that are unnecessary. And so you are still, in theory, cutting down on the sheer number of possessions you have. But if you think of minimalism as trying to minimize the stuff that you have as much as possible and that might veer more towards into like asceticism then I don't think she's a minimalist since she makes it clear in her book that she's not anti-consumption and I don't know if it was in her book or in an interview where she talks about how you know once you get rid of stuff in your life that doesn't bring you joy that frees up space for you to like buy things that do so it's not you know reducing items so that you never buy unnecessary items again it's like oh you get rid of the stuff that makes you unhappy so you can buy more stuff that makes you happy Marie Kondo sells stuff now like stuff to purify your home or whatever there was an article in the Atlantic about how she's basically selling out which I feel like is a misread of Marie Kondo because it's not as if she doesn't advocate for buying things that bring you joy like I don't think she would just straight up be like you should buy my things it's more like you should buy my things if they enhance your life in some way and I don't think it's like a net positive that she's selling all this, what I think is junk. But I don't think that's like hypocrisy on her part to do that. It's also inevitable, I feel, where if she wants to stay relevant and continue growing her brand, then it's obvious that at some point she'd have to start selling things besides her book and like her philosophy. I think there are a lot of paradoxes inherent in this contemporary concept of minimalism. Some people are... minimalists by and they wouldn't call themselves minimalists but they own few possessions just by the fact that they can't afford them and I think the people in the tv show were I don't know I would say like American middle class minimalism is something that comes with a lot of privilege because you know a lot of people in the show have really struggled to let things go because they're like oh what if I need this there's like that just in case mentality of if I lose this like I won't be able to take care of myself or my family in case something goes wrong and if you choose minimalism or choose to get rid of your things as like an aesthetic choice you'll be able to just rebuy things or source them when they're actually needed as opposed to just having them for that just in case mentality as broke millennials or whatever like gen z (laughs) stephanie identifies as gen z (laughs) (laughs) there's a divide here um i assert that we're all millennials but whatever well astrologically no oh my god (laughs) yeah astrologically you're gen z technically really i'm actually a millennial it depends on your pluto so if your pluto is in scorpio you're a millennial and then if it's in sagittarius you're gen z so mine is very late scorpio so i identify as a millennial my pluto is in sag this is great news also because i don't have a tiktok i i can't say i'm gen z oh so three out of four of us are according to Mrs. TikTok metric, are Gen Z. Man, you're back to being Gen <laughs> Z. Congratulations. <laughs> no, I'm definitely, I'm not kidding myself on this. I'm definitely a millennial. Wait, so am I a Gen Z because I am a Sagittarius? 
No, 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 no. It has to be, it's your Pluto. Yeah, so Pluto, like, stays in place for, like, several years. And then late from, like, November 95, it moves into school, into Sagittarius, so. Oh. Should we do breakout rooms where Steph and I just talk about makeup and you and Mayan can talk about <laughs> astrology? No, I want to be in the astrology room. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll be alone then. Oh, yeah, I'm checking your chart. You're a one degree Pluto and Sagittarius. So you're you're a Gen Z. Yeah. Stephanie, I'm young. <laughs> Yay, congrats. <laughs> okay, now I like astrology again. <laughs> what I feel is a misconception of her practice is people kind of see it as like she's selling a lifestyle. And to me, from reading the book, it feels more like a cleanse. I feel like it's a bit disingenuous of her to say that it's a one-time thing because you do have to kind of continue questioning the objects that are around you. But it seems to be a solution if you're really stuck with your possession as a problem, no matter how little or how much you have. And you do it as like a life event. And the result of that will alter your lifestyle more than the practice of this method. But I also do think that it's not anecdotal that she concentrates a lot on the fact that people are getting rid of things but the pillar of the philosophy seems to be spark joy and so I almost wish that she had spent more time in the book like talking about the things people kept and why they kept them and the kind of relationship that we tie to things. Yeah that's a good point because I feel like she spent a lot of time providing advice on like how to get rid of things that most people would have difficulty parting with like cards or gifts from family members friends all that so it's helpful in letting people know that like yes it is okay to get rid of things even if they hold sentimental value but yeah she doesn't focus a lot on items that people kept and kind of explaining how they spark joy since the concept that she uses or like the the feeling that she's trying to convey when she uses that term spark joy is not easily translatable and it might be abstract for for people who are new to tidying up. Part of it is like a translation issue, I feel. But yeah, I guess it's like kind of a nebulous concept anyway. Yeah. How much joy is does it need to spark for you to keep it? There was one essay that you recommended. It was the, um, the Atlantic one about the meaning that things hold especially for people who come from immigrant and refugees family and how in this author's house to their mother like everything sparked joy because the traumatic event that had led to so much of their family history being erased meant that every object was a reminder that they've survived it kind of also Weirdly echoed to a point that Marie Kondo makes in her book where she talks about how you shouldn't do that tidying in front of your family because they're just going to keep the stuff. The last time I tidied at my parents' house, I like told my mom, do not look in the bags or you will keep things. And Marie Kondo says it's really hard for parents to realize that their children won't need that, that they will be fine without needing this. And you want to provide so much that you just lash on objects, even if it's not practically an object that you could ever need. Yeah, and I think that mentality is really common amongst the war generation, basically. My grandparents, so people who grew up during World War II, or in my case, the Korean War, like anything like that, there's very much that mindset of like scarcity. And so now that they're 
older and potentially more financially stable, there's still that instinct to save as much as possible. It seems that she's making tidying this one thing that will change your life when in fact it is things around tidying that will save your life, but the tidying will canalize all of this. And like she talks about it in the introduction of like, this client of mine dumped her husband after doing the Marry method. And to me, I was like, well, that makes sense because if you reach a point where, <laughs> I mean, first of all, yes, divorce your husband. He does not spark joy. <laughs> he does not, yeah. If you reach a point where you want to consult with Mary Kondo, over doing the method and, and getting rid of things and reorganizing what is important, what you value in your life. That's what is starting the process. You, you're either starting to realize that you're not in the condition to be the person that you want. And you kind of see it in, in the TV show where a lot of them, you know, they're starting a family they're like moving for a very big job. They want their parents to take them more seriously. Their kids have left. Their husband have passed away. Like there's loads of different life events. And so to me, it makes sense because you physically find like a channel to experience their psychological journey. And Mary Kondo is almost like a part-time therapist to these people while she's like helping them put their life in order. It just demonstrates the kind of value that we culturally place on objects. These people are obviously going through major life changes or like struggles. And it's interesting that the solution to that is to like organize your life and the objects you own as opposed to going to therapy. I mean, it's a lot less daunting, I think. It's easier to like overhaul your closet than it is to find a therapist. (laughs) And I think she brings it up to where it's like a stepping stone to bigger changes so I get that Mm. aspect of it it also can be a form of therapy like not everyone benefits from talking therapy or at least not straight away and it can be a stepping stone it can also be a form of dealing with certain issues that is actually more effective for you than than talking therapy like yeah there was the episode where that woman's husband passed away and she was trying to get rid of all of his old clothes. So I do think that in a sense, it can be very healing for people to really think about their possessions. I'm just a little concerned by the underlying idea that redirecting your feelings back to your things just feels slightly sus to me, though I recognize the value in it. Even as someone who likes the Komari method a lot, I'm like, is this just a way for me to avoid thinking about my problems or is it a way for you to think about them maybe you might be using konmari as a way to avoid exploring other issues you may have or you might be using konmari to address those issues so i think different people will have different uses for it but i don't know i just keep going back to the idea of it can be deep but really is it how deep (laughs) it's not that deep you know (laughs) would you say that going through the process maybe kick-started a version of yourself that you're more happy with? Um, I think so. For me, unfinished status of things I own makes me really anxious. So like books I haven't read yet or like clothes I've bought but haven't worn. Like as someone who wants to live a very practical life and as someone who also wants to travel a lot, like I find a lot of usefulness in 
being as mobile as possible, which is why I personally want to reduce my things. I mean, I'm living at home right now and my goal is to move out post-pandemic. But I know that as a unemployed millennial, like I will probably not be living in a place with a lot of space and housing is not going to be a very stable situation for me. And I want to be able to have control of all the things I own and like not be burdened with too many things to carry around all the time. So like on that level, I really found it valuable. I think she mentions this in the book, but a lot of people got really interested in decluttering after 311 um, in Japan. And there's a book book by this guy Fumio Sasaki who he wrote this other book that's quite popular here called Goodbye Things which I've also read but that one is like takes away more get rid of all your shit type tactic as opposed to Mary Kondo who's like just keep the things you love his mentality toward having fewer things lies in partially in the very Japanese fear of natural disasters happening at any point so he's like well you need to be mobile and own fewer items because there is a possibility that all of your things could be taken away. So if there's an earthquake, like you can get all your shit together in a backpack and run. I think it's interesting how a natural disaster or some life-changing event can instill like two very different mindsets in people. One being, if I'm at risk of losing everything I have, then I might as well keep the number of items I have very low and like be mobile. And then on the other hand, you have people who, because they have lost everything or because they have experienced scarcity, are in the mindset of like, I want to preserve as much as I can. It just feels really fucked up to me that natural disasters are only going to become more of a issue. But it's like the production of stuff is like correlated with global warming. Part of the reason why I wanted to use Maria Kondo as like a jumping off point to talk about capitalism and consumerism in general is because recently like a preoccupation I've been having is with this explosion in fast fashion. A couple years ago I stopped buying fast fashion. I no longer shop at H&M or Zara or Forever 21 and obviously that's like an expression of my own privilege like that I can afford to not shop at these places anymore. It's kind of exploded to the point where like H&M and Zara aren't even the most exploitative companies. Like now we have what would they call ultra fast fashion, which is companies that mostly don't have brick and mortar stores. So they're almost entirely based online. We've now entered a period of time where consuming fashion is more inexpensive and quickly accessible than ever before. Just overall, it is pretty scary to me just how casual about having so much of a flippant attitude about buying things you know, with like haul videos and showing off how much you accumulate is a very recent phenomenon. Two years ago, I wrote an article for The Skinny about environmentalism relationship with Instagram. It was basically about how environmentalist platforms on Instagram, specifically like Trash Nothing or the Zero Waste Collective, function within an influencer structure even if they're kind of anti-influencer and they do have a positive aspect like they do communicate you know really good values and everything but to sustain themselves as popular platform and continue to spread their message they have to enter into an influencer concept and essentially sell the lifestyle of being zero waste and being environmentally conscious and that per essence goes against fighting for climate justice because 
you're selling an idea of like a performance of living green and there's only so much that that can do and i think that's one of the reasons why fast fashion is a problem that we all know of but it seems like so little of us actually do anything about because there is so much more to the issue than even just the fact that it's underpaid or even barely paid at all workforce and that we just churn out all of these designs. There's also like the pollution that goes with dyeing all of this fabric and like burning all of this fabric. Like all of the items that have a slight default will be burned, which will go back to pollution in the air. I mean, it's not even just like dyeing clothing. Like cotton is really water intensive to produce. And even like high-end designers will trash clothing. So in order to keep up the rarity value of their products, they'll just burn them or like dispose of them in a landfill. With personal life choices as it relates to like sustainability or politics, there is only so much that an individual can do. And like just because you personally don't buy a lot of items doesn't mean that it affects the industry as a whole. I definitely don't think that individuals should be responsible for the problems that capitalism and like the billionaires of the world have created but I think people at various points in their life may reach a crossroads where they could change their lifestyle or like you know be more critical about their choices and I think it is important that if you're able to you do start to question things and like think more about like your place in the world because yes individual choices may not make a big impact but the idea behind it is like collectively a lot of people making individual choices is what can help progress society and so I think as it relates to minimalism or like you know not buying fast fashion like you shouldn't do it to like absolve yourself but with the idea or the understanding that you may be contributing to like a broader movement overall. Most of my close friends aren't really the type to buy a lot of fast fashion or like buy a lot of stuff anyway but like when it comes to acquaintances or people I don't know very well I feel like the frustration comes from the feeling that the person doesn't understand the stakes involved. It's not that it's like oh you are responsible for global warming or like people being oppressed to create these useless products but it's just that conscious consumption is just a very small sliver of your overall politics and I think that's just like evidence of your general outlook I guess. I would add as well to me it's important to like decenter how much individual choice impacts you know the wider politics because there is this neoliberal like tendency to just like ditch plastic straws and this will be the end of climate change and we're not holding companies accountable at all. But there is something to be said about individual choices and in that it demands for you to consistently ask yourself how committed you are to envisioning a different world. And there's only so much you can do, but it does push you a little bit to be like, well, if I buy this, why are the steak? And you can't always you know, avoid having bad steaks. Like at the moment I'm considering what I'm gonna buy to watch TV on and like the choices are a Google Chrome or an Amazon Fire Stick. Like both of these companies are terrible. Which one do I choose? But just the fact that you have to keep yourself on your toes to consistently imagine a different option than the one we're being given, I think is very telling if people are committed to doing that. My sister was, uh, she's working on like some class where they talk about activism 
in design and like advertising and she showed me this cute animation with this whale and this penguin and the penguin's ice kept getting smaller and so the whale would like push the ice toward it so the penguin would have somewhere to stand but it just kept melting because the sun kept getting hotter and I don't remember what the wording was exactly but then it was like oh we can all build a better world and then <laughs> the advertisement was for 10 cent <laughs> They're a Chinese multinational technology conglomerate holding company. Oh, God. That sounds scary. <laughs> I love those words together, yeah. Its subsidiaries globally market various internet-related services and products, including in artificial intelligence and other technology. Uh, and they're worth 482.1 billion won. But yeah, I think another thing people need to remember is that with regard to individual choice and like consumer choice companies try to market eco-friendly or like more socially conscious messaging to consumers on purpose because that distracts from the responsibility of companies to uh, be holding themselves accountable it's like really funny to see these commercials where people where they're like together we can all change the world but it's like you are the ones farting out pollutants (laughs) you know it is not our fault for having to buy your cheap shitty plastic or like your exploitative consumer electronics. The simple answer is government regulation. What? Why do you make that face? Do you want to say something? (laughs) No. Sounds very liberal of you. (laughs) Why? Why is that liberal? No, just in general, the like idea that, you know, government regulations will save us all. Oh, I don't think that's the end game. I just think that in the short term, at least, like I understand why saying regulation is effective because you know when you think about things like fast fashion part of the problem is that labor isn't regulated abroad and some companies will like actually hold their employees to the same standards as they would within the country where products are actually being produced but for the most part the reason why most people have their clothes made abroad is because they aren't held to the same standards yeah i agree incremental change is still better than no change and you shouldn't just wait for the complete collapse of society and the environment to be like now we should do something or like fall into the idea that humans are incapable of change that's called accelerationism and that's bad i also want to talk about culture and how it relates to minimalism and it reminded me of this video by ryan finn so ryan finn is an internet personality. I know them from Tumblr. One of the items that they talk about is how minimalism and the idea of living a quote-unquote like simple or a life that isn't defined by like material possessions is ignorant of different cultures and like how different people think of the accumulation of wealth and like their main example is how in the black community there are a lot of people who place a high value on accumulating wealth and like showing displays of wealth to serve as a counter to like their personal history or like their personal progression from not having money to now having money and how that ties into broader culture and how because historically black people have been in like lower socioeconomic statuses and because of systemic racism and how that departure from not having money or like not having the ability to show off displays of wealth it becomes really important to to some people but there is like that nuance that minimalism straight up may not recognize i feel like that gets to the whole issue of like different cultures and like different socioeconomic classes dictating like how you feel about minimalism or like anti-consumerism and how like a lot of conversations you miss out on a lot of nuance when you like have certain 
documentaries or books or personalities who are like very popular and they become synonymous with a certain lifestyle or philosophy or method of tidying up. When I think of minimalism, I think of reducing the number of possessions you own because fundamentally you don't need a lot of stuff. But I think what's interesting is I feel like there are a lot of people who are really into minimalism to the point where it becomes an obsession or it becomes like a fixation on how few items you have or like how much you can get rid of. And that feels very antithetical to minimalism as a concept. It's just a different extreme where you go from being like, I don't need anything to making it a competition about how little you have or how much you can get rid of and how simply you can live. There's almost a like moral superiority feeling over how little do you need in your life. And I feel like there's this shame prevalent in like a lot of people that your happiness is not important enough to just exist. Like it has to have a justification. I think that plays into that whole aesthetic of minimalism as we see it nowadays. Like when we think of minimalism, you think of a room with not much in it and everything's white and clean. I mean, Steve Jobs thought of himself as like a minimalist and there's like that whole perceived identification with Silicon Valley tech bros these days where they're like, oh, I wear the same shirt and pants every day. Because of decision fatigue. I was reading this book about minimalism by Kyle Cheka, and he was talking about how minimalism as an aesthetic is actually pretty fake. Because if you use Apple as an example, for instance, the original popular design principle was, you know, form follows function, right? Now, the whole point of Apple is to just be like as flat as possible. And on the surface, it looks very minimalist and simplified, but that obscures like a whole matrix of technology and like labor that goes into producing these items. Just because you perceive yourself to be minimalist because you only own a few possessions or like they're immaculately designed to take up the least amount of space possible does not mean that the objects in themselves are devoid of waste and labor. I mean, the same concept goes for the zero waste movement. Just because you yourself are not producing waste doesn't mean that there isn't upstream waste. On a personal level, it could be very useful to you, but in terms of broader politics and the life you live, minimalism doesn't really do anything beyond what works within your own house because in terms of your community, there are still externalities of the things you buy and what you own are so much broader and companies like Apple intentionally obscure all of that. Their name was like predominantly associated in the news with like people committing suicide in China after working at their factories like at Foxconn. Your hands aren't clean of all of the unpleasant like byproduct of what you own. On the topic of like minimalism and morality, I want to talk about this documentary about minimalism that's like extremely popular. The people who made this documentary on minimalism are two white guys who were like in the corporate world making a lot of money and then one day they had this epiphany of I don't need all these items, like, I'm going to become a minimalist. They're pointing at something really interesting in the relationship between the fact that the creator of the minimalist or, like, advocating for, like, not having anything, basically. But they're still making a ton of money on all of these books and all of these films and their Patreon and everything. And if they're not buying anything, then where is that money going? And what are the ethics, you know, behind... Behind that, because that's like, that's also like the case with like Steve Jobs and all of these guys. Like, it's like, 
if stuff don't make you happy and money doesn't make you happy, then why do you keep amassing money? Like, why do you keep on hoarding it then? Like, For some people, there's a sense of moral superiority for breaking free from that cycle of consumption and purchasing items that at the end of the day are technically not needs but wants and disclaimer i'm no like marxist scholar so take everything i say with a grain of salt but marx does touch upon this a bit in his like writings on alienation and there's like four different forms of alienation but one is alienation from labor where the working class they produce objects but they don't own them ultimately and so they miss out on, you know, any of those potential profits, but then the capitalists, the individuals who own the means of production, they're not only exploiting the workers, but they're using the workers' own output to maintain control over them. And so it's not surprising, I would say, that individuals are stuck kind of in this constant loop of, I work to make money, and then I use that money to buy goods that people who are making money produce where it's like this cycle of you work to consume and then the output of your work is items to consume and so it's like a hamster wheel basically. I think it's interesting that Marie Kondo has become so popular in the 21st century. Marie Kondo is not the first person to encourage decluttering. She's just the most popular at the moment but a lot of times these trends come after like periods of upheaval and there was a lot of that kind of mentality especially after like the financial crisis in 08 but in the 20th century and like in the past your value was based on the property you owned and land ownership like in America the constitution is like functionally based on land ownership you know life liberty and what was originally property and is now pursuit of happiness but I they're the same thing <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Nowadays, so much of society's value is held in this invisible cloud. Like money is held in banks, like in offshore accounts, like in cryptocurrency, which is not a real thing. You literally cannot hold it. Like there's no value to all this money that's circulating, right? So a lot of the value that once existed in actual physical objects like doesn't exist anymore. And so our world is basically just vast amounts of stored capital, but in our heads. And so that kind of goes back to like how a couple decades ago, like when you owned a house, people couldn't just take your shit away from you. But this premise that you put on the maintenance of what we own feels kind of justified because it feels so easy to have everything taken away from you. Before we used to have a middle class and now even the middle class is like very much threatened. In America, if you have like one accident and you have hospital bills, like that's your existence right there. Like you no longer have a house. You no longer have anything. So when everything seems so tenuous, it feels kind of natural to want to direct your attention toward what you own. That makes sense. Income inequality is worse than it was at the time of the French Revolution. That's like a big thing I see online where it's like, yeah, this is worse than when they dragged everyone and chopped their heads off. So I guess, how do we want to officially end things? What's the, how do you want to tie it all together into a nice bow? Would you recommend other people to Kunmari after this whole? I would recommend it. No, and like, if you want to change your life in, you know, the grandiose way that it's being put in the book. But I do think it's a very practical and effective way of looking at things. Yeah, I agree. I think Mary Kondo's method of tidying up is very practical and it definitely changed my perception of 
how I should go about tidying or decluttering my life, which is something I often express a desire to do. And I think, you know, for some people, it may be that transformative act. And like, if this is what it takes to, you know, get the ball rolling on other aspects of your life, then might as well give it a shot. And like, if it doesn't, then like Keno said, at least you'll have a tidy home. I mean, initially, I was trying to focus on Marie Kondo and her decluttering process. But I think we went really wide and expanded on a lot of different subjects that we didn't think we were going to tackle. But I think the conclusion is that the whole concept of minimalism or decluttering is very conflicted. And it's not like something that is easy to come to terms with. If we were able to come to terms with this so easily within the span of an hour long podcast, I feel like we wouldn't have as many problems as we do in general. But I think this might be as close as we can get to like coming to some sort of understanding about how we feel about our own possessions. Thank you, Maya, for joining our podcast. Hopefully we haven't like scared you all and you can join us in future episodes. Yeah, it was so lovely to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 